Shabbos Shira, this, uh, the Shabbos, we have the privilege of uh, continuing with Parsha's Beshalach. And as is our practice, we'll review the whole Parsha and then uh, come back and uh, analyze uh, the Pesukim we're going to look at today. Parsha's Beshalach, of course, picks up where uh, Parsha's bow left off. The plagues have concluded. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the Jewish people, are finally released uh, from Egypt. And as our Parsha begins, Vahid Beshalach Paro. When Paro sent out the people, as, a, as opposed to, it should have said, when Hashem took the people out. What do you mean when Paro sent the people out? As if we give Paro the, uh, the credit. But Paro sends the people out, and they begin uh, to go on the way, and it tells us their journey. Paro, of course, quickly has a change of heart, as we all know. Paro regrets his decision to release them, to send them, gathers his army, and begins the pursuit. The Jewish people freeze. They are... Uh, they're panicked by the what they see behind them. They feel absolutely uh, they feel absolutely sandwiched between the Egyptians and the sea before them. Kajborhu gives them the promise. First the Kajborhu says, What are they uh, what are they standing for? Why are they why are they standing still? Why are they crying? Why are they diving? And of course this needs much explanation. No, we're not gonna spend time on it today. But what do you mean Hashem says, why are they davening? Isn't that what we're taught to do? Isn't that what everybody's supposed to do? You find yourself in a predicament, in an uncomfortable situation. You find yourself in a challenging, compromising uh, position. You're supposed to daven. You reach out to Hashem. What do you mean Hashem turns to them and says, what are you doing? Put the Tehillim away, close the book, stop davening, and get to work. And of course, this is the precedent. There's a lot of discussion around this. But this is the precedent for the importance of what I like to refer to as two types of davening. There's a davening that we do with our lips, there's a davening that we do with our words, and there's a davening that we do with our actions. And they're both critically important. People who spend all of their time davening with words, but their own actions are not proactive. They don't exhibit the own, their own effort, so the words are somewhat empty. People who only exert effort, who only are proactive, who only show human intervention, but they don't rely on Hashem with their words, it's also empty. It's the combination of the two, which is the mandate of a Jew. We are to be active in our efforts, human intervention, which are try to make an effort to uh, influence our own destiny, and at the same time, daven. So, and there's a time and a moment for each. So at this moment, Hashem says, what are you doing with the Tehillim? Start walking. What are you doing davening? Now is the time to move. So it's time to go. So of course they go. Nachshon ben Aminadav is the hero. He's the first to walk in. The sea splits. The Egyptians follow them in. The water crashes down on the Egyptians. The Jewish people are saved. Incredible. What a shivcha solayam, what a uh, maidservant, a slave woman saw on the uh, sea that day is something that even Yechezkel ben Buzi didn't see, says the Gemara. The great prophet Yechezkel, who had the incredible prophecy of the chariots and of the angels and of all of the the uh, celestial beings, this incredible uh, revelation about Hashem, paled in comparison to what the average or what the lowly person saw on the sea that day. An incredible divine revelation. An amazing, amazing um, culmination of events coming together in such a way which could, leave, could not leave one with anything short of the impression of it being a miracle. Here the Jews have given up hope. They're caught between the sea and the Egyptians just when it seems like it's no possible future. All of a sudden a miracle occurs. The sea splits. The Jewish people walk right between. The, uh, the sea crashes. The, the, the water crashes on the heads of the Egyptians and they're saved. And then of course we have the Shira itself. We have the song, Az Yasir Moshe. 
We say it every day in Pesukia de Zimra. We say it every day in Davening. The Gemara says anyone who says Shira every day is guaranteed uh, all of these things. So why is it called Shira? Why are you guaranteed if you say it every day? What does it mean? And of course, it's a much, much more significance. It means to live a life of Shira. To say Shira is not just to say words. It's to feel Shira. It's to sing Shira. What is Shira? It's all for another time. After the conclusion of the uh, collective Shira, we have Miriam. The women's choir takes over. And uh, Miriam, with her instruments and the women, have their own song and have their own dance. And not one Pasuk later, I'm on page 380 now, 381. The Jewish people come, They travel three days in the desert, and they don't find water. They don't find water. Now, of course, by the way, the Gemara understands this allegorically. Not only did they not find water, what is compared to water? Torah. And from here we deduce that it's forbidden to go three days without Torah. And this is the origin that Moshe established Torah reading of Monday and Thursday. Why? So that we never go three days without Torah. And there's a big discussion. Is the Chiv of Torah reading, is Kriyas Torah, is that a Chovah Sayachid or a Chovah Satsibur? Is it an obligation on the individual or an obligation on the community? With a big practical consequence. In other words, what happens if an individual didn't hear a Torah reading on Monday? Could they um, initiate for the whole tzibur to read the Torah? So this is a big discussion, a big debate among the early, the Rishonim, the Achronim, and so on and so forth. Rabbi Salavechik, for example, felt it was a Chovah Sayachid. So when the Rav would fly from Boston and miss Kriyas Torah on a Monday or a Thursday, he would have them laying at Mincha that day. Because he missed it and he felt there's an obligation on the individual to hear the Torah reading. Others see it as a chovah satzibur. Not an obligation on the individual, but an obligation on the community. So it would only be if the entire community, if the whole community for whatever reason didn't have a Torah, that they would uh, read the Torah later. Yeah, Moshe Leib. Why do we read Shabbos afternoon as well? That was The Gemara has this discussion because it says Ezra was Misakein. What do you mean Ezra was Misakein? Moshe already was Misakein it earlier. So, uh, different, I don't know, I don't remember exactly what it says, why Shabbos afternoon. But Monday and Thursday is not to go three days without. So they come to a place called Mara, and they couldn't drink. Why? Look at this Pasuk. This is not what we're studying today, but I just want to share with you an incredible Kutzker. Page 380-381. Three days they travel, there's no water. And they come to a place that had water, but they couldn't drink it. Because they were bitter. What was bitter? What was bitter? Says the Kutzker, not the water. The people. The people were bitter. And when you're a people who are bitter, you don't see something sweet that's right before you. Something called the missing tile syndrome. The missing tile syndrome is the person who looks up at the roof and notices the ceiling and notices the one missing tile. The person who looks at something that's full and vibrant and beautiful and only sees what's missing. That's the missing tile syndrome. That doesn't mean that you can't notice what's missing and want to fix it. There's nothing wrong with noticing what's missing and wanting to fix it. But it means that all a person can focus on is what's missing. They don't see the beauty for what is. All they see is what's not. So says the Kotzker, Kimarim Heim. They, not the water, the people were bitter. And their bitterness led them to see everything around them as bitter. Vayilonu Ha'am. And therefore they complained. And Rashi on this word, Vayilonu says, Was it wrong to... To call out to God? I mean, what was God's expectation? Three days without water? That's a long time. Men, women, children, caravans of people. 
What are you supposed to do to survive? Of course you need water. So what was wrong? What was wrong was not that they needed water. What was wrong was the manner in which they asked. Because they didn't ask for water. Vayilonu. What does Vayilonu mean? They complained. And that's something that we'll see over and over again. So they call out and uh, to Hashem. Hashem shows him a tree. He threw it in the water. And the water became sweet. There was a very powerful message here too, says the Kutzker. Vayim teku hamayim. One second, how could the same bitter water become sweet? And the answer was, the water was never bitter. The people were, says the Kutzker. And God created evidence here. God showed, for, by example, to extrapolate the sweetness from the bitterness. That if you transform yourself from being bitter, you can find sweetness in almost anything. So God takes from the tree and throws them in the water and extracts the sweetness. It doesn't mean that the water was transformed from bitter to sweet, says the Kutzker. It means that if the people will transform, allow themselves to not be bitter, then you can identify the sweetness in anything. That's what Hashem continues. If you'll listen to Hashem, and you'll do what He says, what they've suffered from in Egypt, I won't place on you. I can handle everything, says Hashem. Just don't be bitter. Just be with me. Just be positive. And if you're positive, then you'll be able to see the sweetness in everything. Yes? What happened to Miriam as well? What did you ask? What ha- wasn't introduced yet. Was it? What? I thought it, it, it traveled with them throughout the desert. Yeah, but I don't think it was introduced yet, was it? So what happened, Alex asked, what happened to Miriam's well? But I don't think it was introduced yet, the merit of Miriam's well. So they journey, they continue now from Elim, and they arrive in the wilderness, and again they complain, They complain again, would you bring us out here to die? We want some flesh. We want some steak. With all due respect to our scholar and residents, last Shabbos, Dr. Mayim Bialik was fantastic. All those who heard her, she's a vegan. We had a lot of discussions. She stayed at my house. A lot of discussions over Shabbos. My wife even called her last night for some vegan recipes. Oi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she was. I, I spent all Shabbos being inspired by her uh, journey and try to be Makari for more. And she spent all Shabbos being Makari of me to uh, veganism. So. Uh, anyway, so. So the Jewish people said, Where's our steak? Where's our, where's our fleisch? Where's our bosser? They complained again. So what's Hashem's response? The man. The man fell from heaven. There were strict instructions. You collected only for that day, not for the future, except on Shabbos. You collected for two days' worth, and you prepared for Shabbos. They then journey from the wilderness. They journey from Midbar Sin, uh, and they continue on. They encamp in Rafidim. There's no water. The people again complain, We need water. And uh, Moshe already starts to, uh, to, uh, to be frustrated with this very stubborn people. If you remember... The Joshua from two weeks ago, what did Hashem tell Moshe and Aaron was going to be the most critical, critical character trait in order to be able to endure with this people? Patience. Patience. Nachas So already the Savlanut kicks in, their need to exhibit patience. So uh, the miracles performed, they extract the water from the rock, and then the final section of the Parsha is the struggle against Amalek, Amalek attack. Um... And Moshe tells Yoshua to go out. And when Moshe raises his hands, they're victorious. And when he lowers his hands, they lose. And that's the end of the, uh, the parsha. Interestingly, by the way, did we defeat Amalek? Vayachalosh Yehoshua Amalek. We weakened Amalek. We never fully defeated them. And therefore they remained 
a thorn in our side. Okay, so now let's go back. What I want to study today is a little bit about the mun. The mun. Go back to chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 27. Page 382, 383 in the Stone Chumash. The last Pasuk, the last verse of, of uh, chapter 15. And again, as I often remind you, why are we starting here? Why not start from the new parak? The answer is the Prakim were not given by the Jews. Our understanding of how to divide the Torah is based on the spacing. And as you see, the spacing is between verse 26 and verse 27. Verse 27 is what begins a new topic. And that's where we'll begin from. Okay, everyone has the place? They arrive at Elim. There were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. And they encamped there Al Hamayim on the water. What's the significance of giving us these numbers? Who cares? Tell us where they journeyed. The geographic location may be important to give us a sense of context. They came from here, they went there. There were 12 springs, 70 dates. Are we supposed to be impressed with 70 date palms? Is that a lot of date palms? Doesn't sound like a lot of date palms to me. So what's going on? So look at Rashi. Rashi tells us, There were 12 springs of water. Corresponding with the 12 tribes, these, these springs were preordained, were prepared. They were set aside in anticipation of 12 tribes. How did Rashi come onto this? Rashi is not quoting a Medrash. How did Rashi come onto this? Look at the Sifse Chachamim. Pay. Because Rashi was bothered by that question, right? All of the Mephoshim come onto their commentary because they were bothered by a question. Rashi was bothered. Why is the Torah giving me a number? Who cares? Say there were springs of water. Why 12? It must be a correspondence with something. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist if you are familiar with Torah to say, what is the number 12? What, what does that associate with? 12 tribes. 12 tribes. What do you mean, Nizdamnu lahem? It was set aside or prepared for them. Says the Sifsei Chachamim Os Tzadi. Nothing new has been created since creation. So Rashi does not mean to suggest that God created these 12 springs as they walked up to them. It means that when God created them at the moment of creation, it was in anticipation of what would happen all this time later that the Jewish people would arrive and the 12 tribes would each need a spring in order to freshen up and so on. That when God created the world, He already anticipated the needs of what would happen far off into the future. And the creation of the world corresponds with those needs. So when Rashi says these 12 springs correspond with the 12 tribes, it doesn't mean that God created them right now, yesh in something new. It means that this was an affirmation of that which God had created all way back when, would be anticipated, needed, and now it was. V'shivim tvarim, and 70 dates, keneget shivim zkenim, this corresponds with the 70 elders, the 70 zkenim. Which again, 70 is not, it's not super impressive. The Ramban makes that point. The Ramban says 70 dates is not so big. What's the big deal? 
So Rashi says, why, this, why is it giving us the number 70? Not to impress us by the number, but to correspond with the Jewish people, to remind us that everything Hashem does is incredible. When He created the world, He created it in such a fashion to anticipate the needs of what was yet to come. Okay, Perak Tezayim Pasagalaf. Now they travel from Elim and they go to Midbarsin to the desert, which is this, uh, this desert of uh, Sin, is between Elim and Sinai. And when do they arrive? On the 15th day of the second month, the 15th day of the second month since they have left. Why is that dating significant? Why do we care when they get there? What? Got a full moon on the 15th, absolutely. But why do we care? What's significant about this day? Okay, that's true. Interesting. Yeah, that's true. But what does it tell us? What's about to happen? Look at the next puzzle. Jewish people come and they complain again. They've already complained about the water. They've been out of Egypt for a very short time. Remember the manner in which they left. There were ten incredible, miraculous plagues. Divine revelation. Then just when all hope was lost and they thought they had no chance of survival, the sea split. And despite the incredible, miraculous manner in which they've left, rather than appreciate their very existence, in such a short time later, they're already complaining. Vailona, they complain about the water. Vailona, they're complaining about the food. Vailona, they're going to complain again later on, again, they're thirsty, again, there's no water. And that becomes the character of the Jewish people, particularly in Sefer Bamidbar. They're characterized as a group of complainers. Unfortunately, tragically. In fact, many of them, unfortunately, explain that it's part of the evolution, it's part of their development, their growth from being a slave nation. A nation, a people, a nation and a people of expectation, a nation and a people of entitlement, a nation and a people, in the Kotzker's words, of marimeim, of bitterness, to being able to be hopeful and optimistic and self-sufficient and realize that it's up to them. That's what later in Sefer Bamidbar, they're referred to as the misononim. Misononim means complainers. What is the form of the verb misononim? Hitpael. Some of the commentators note Hidpael means that they, it wasn't just that they issued a complaint. It was that they turned themselves into complainers. Hidpael is reflexive. Hidpael is what one does to oneself. So misonanim means they turn themselves into complainers. Not just that they had complaints, they were complainers. And this is what we see begins to unfold. So they're about to complain about the food. Why now all of a sudden do they wake up and complain about food? This is the 15th day of the second month since they left Egypt. What have they been doing for food all this time? Says Rashi, The provisions that they left Egypt with ran out. Whatever they were subsiding off of, whatever they subsisting off of, whatever they were living off of, had run out. The bread, the, certainly was stale, the harara, the cakes, the whatever they had. And it was time they needed bread. We see from here that the matzah that was baked, that lasted, that they left with, right, lasted for 61 meals. And the man fell on the 16th of the month of Iyar. 
V'yom echad b'shamas hayek yidiyis b'mesach ha-shamas. And that was a Sunday, as it says in Mesech HaShavos. So the mon began to fall on, on the 16th of the day of Iyar, right after Pesach Sheni. So the significance of giving us this date is to tell us that the food lasted until this point, but now they were out of food. And now that they're out of food, what happens next? Vayilonu. Rashi says, Vayilonu l'fisha kola There was no more bread. Right away, what mode do they go into? Complaint mode. Says the Orachayim Akadosh by Ilonu, Perish Klinus Tuluno, some Haisa al Haviam Derach Midbar. If you look at the Pasuk, it says, Vailonu Koladas Ben Israel Amoshavi Al Aron, Ba Midbar. What was bothering the Orachayim Akadosh? It says they complained the Jewish people turned on Moshe and Aaron in the desert. What was bothering the Orachayim Akadosh? Why Bamidbar? Who cares where the complaint was? If the complaint was about bread, who cares where? Just say, Why does it have to say, Bamidbar? In the desert. So that's clearly what bothered Orachayim. So Orachayim says, what was their complaint? Their complaint wasn't about the bread. Their complaint wasn't about the bread. The complaint was about the root. Why'd you take us through the desert? Because there's other ways to get to Israel. They knew they were going to Israel, but there's other routes they could take. Why are you going this way? This was their complaint. That's why the Pasuk includes the word Bamidbar. It's not coincidental, it's not extraneous. It's because that was the complaint. In other words, why didn't they have bread? Why didn't they have bread? If they had gone a different route, and they passed through a city that had a supermarket, they'd have bread. If they went a different route that had a field where you could grow, they would have bread. But where did Moshe and Aaron take them? What was the path that he took them? Through the desert. So that was their complaint. In other words, the bread is the result, but the complaint essentially is the root. Why are you taking us on this route? I understand we have to go to Eretz Kena'an, to Israel, but there's all kinds of ways we can go. Why would you take us, Derech HaMidbar, why would you take us the way of the desert, which means that we won't be able to have access to bread. The reason is very deep why they went through the desert, specifically. Right? We know that in a person's development and growth, you can't, you can't live with until you've learned to live without. Hashem wanted to purge them of the slave mentality. He wanted them to experience the hardship of the desert. The beginning of Sefer Bamidbar. You can't accept the Torah, Ella, someone who lives in a, turns themselves into a Midbar, says the Medrash. So there are very deep reasons, says the Rechaim. Hashem, The real reason they went that way was, who was the GPS? Hashem. Hashem was the one who, who gave the path, who gave the route. But the people didn't realize it was Hashem, they thought it was Moshe. So here they come and complain to Moshe, what are you doing? There's no supermarket. There's no field for us to work, to be able to harvest bread. There's nothing. What are you taking us through a desert? Are you crazy? So the Archaim is very meduyak. It's very important because when you read that Pasuk, what clearly bothered him is to read that word, Bamidbar, in the desert as an extra word. Just hold, hold, unless they're, I'm saying something unclear, hold the questions till the end. 
Vayomer Aleim Bnei Yisrael. I'm sorry, Alex. Vayomer Aleim Bnei Yisrael. Mi itain Musaynu Biyad Hashem Beretz Mitzrayim B'Shiftenu Asira Basar B'Achlinu Lacham Lasova. I'm on Pasuk Gimel now. So the Jewish people turn to Moshe Aaron and say, Mi itain Musaynu Biyad Hashem Beretz. Why didn't you just let us die in Egypt? What'd you take us out for? What'd you take us out for? Why don't we die at the hand of Hashem in Egypt? When at least B'Shiftenu Asir Habasar B'Achlinu Lacham Lasova. At least we could have died full. We could have died with a full stomach. We could have died with a good meal. We could have had a last supper. Instead, you took us out to this desert. In other words, if we were destined to die, wouldn't it be better to die on a full stomach? Of course we would prefer not to die. But if we're already going to die, in Egypt, we were on the route of death. It's the oppression, the persecution, we're surely going to die. Here in the desert, we're surely going to die. Once we're going to die, why do I have to starve to death? Let us at least have had a good meal, all the meat we had in Egypt. That's the complaint. That's the vi'ilonu. That's their argument against God. So what does God say? Pasuk Dalad. Pasuk Dalad. By the way, what do you see? Look at the Yorachayim. What's, what should be very surprising to you from the Pasuk? We sat on the pot of meat and we ate bread till we were satisfied. What is this? Revisionist history? Such a short time? It's a month and a half later. In a month and a half later, all of a sudden you say, We had it great! The barbecues, the roast, the meals were unbelievable. What's going on? Says the Orachayim HaKadosh. Mikanat alamad ki midivari lashan hara hazeh heim osam shaloya alayim osiv los mitzrayim You see the ones who lodged this complaint were not the general population who were enslaved and suffering and persecuted and oppressed had no access to meat or a good meal. Who was lodging this complaint? Hashotrim ki amunim sov le'ola golos lach ma'anya achlu b'mitzrayim you know it was it was the Jewish kapos it was the ones who were the uh, Jews appointed by the Egyptians who were persecuting their brothers who were able to taste a little bit of the good life so it was those it was those who had not suffered the most who were now specifically coming and complaining says the Orachayim Okay, so what's Hashem's response? Pasuk Dalad. Vayomer Hashem Moshe, Hinanim Amtir Lachem Lachem Lechem Min Hashemayim. Hashem says, you know what his answer is? I'm going to rain down for you bread from the heavens. V'yatzah Ha'am, and the people will go out, V'lachtu Dvaryom Biyomo, and they will collect each day the portion of that day, Laman Anasenu Hayelech Betorasi Imlo. And why am I doing that, says God? Why am I doing what? giving bread I understand why you're giving bread because the people need to eat but why am I giving it in this unusual fashion of each and every day for that day why? because it will be a nisayon a test what's the test? will they follow my Torah or not? so now let's go back what does it mean? Shem says to Moshe I'm going to rain down going to rain down the the uh, the bread. 
Says the Ramban, look at the Ramban Pasuk Dalit Hini Mantir. Because it's going to look like it's raining, namely that it's falling from the heavens. So it's called Mantir. So the Ramban quotes two possibilities. Maybe the reason God used the verb mamtir is because it looks like rain. Just like rain falls from the heaven, so too this bread falls from the heaven. Or second possibility is maybe it came with the rain. It rained. It rained uh, bread with the rain. The word mamtir means descend, to fall. That it means that this fell, it came down. Okay? And why does God call it lechem, bread from the heaven? Was the man bread? No, it was... Uh, I don't know, it was, I like to think of a more, uh, Mayim Bialik would say it was tofu. Yeah. So, says the Ramban, but why is it called bread? Says the Ramban, it's called bread not because of its ingredients. It's not called bad bread because of its ingredients. Like you have today, what do they call it? Ezekiel bread? I don't know, there's all kinds of breads that are not made from wheat. They're not made from the ingredients of what we would traditionally call bread. But made from sprouts. Bread made from sprouts, alright? Question of what bracha you make. Bread made from sprouts. Why do we call it bread? Not because of its ingredients, but because of its usage. It replaces bread. Bread is a staple at meals. Bread is filling. Bread is what you eat with whatever else you're eating. So when it functions as bread, it's called lechem. So the Ramban says, this man that fell from the heaven was called lechem. Even though it didn't have the ingredients of bread, it was like bread. Okay, that's the Ramban. Says the Yorachayim. Lo Amar of Lemor. It says, Vayomar Hashem Moshe. God said to Moshe, and then he told him, I'm going to rain down the lechem. What's missing? What word? Again, notice how the Mephorshim all ask questions that don't seem to bother us. There's a tremendous sensitivity to the text. What What word is missing? Lemor. Normally Hashem tells something to Moshe and he tells him, Lemor, with the purpose of repeating it to others. Where's the Lemor? Right, he says, He starts out by describing, I'm going to rain for you. And he ends, So you go from Lachem to Anasenu. There's a change, a shift in the, in the grammar, in the person that he's uh, speaking. So the Rechaim explains. The righteous, the man was sitting at their doorstep. All they had to do was open the front door of their tent, and the man was sitting there. To everyone else, you had to go get, you had to get up, and you had to go get it. By a yotzim little coat, you'd have to make the effort to get up and to go get it. When my wife gave birth to our oldest daughter in Shari Tzedek, today it's all changed. There's a brand new floor, it's beautiful, everything's great. 
when they gave when she gave birth to Charitelik, our first daughter, so they didn't bring you a tray of food to your room, to your bed. They announced over the loudspeaker that the food is now available down the hall in the room. Everyone should get up and go get their food. I have to understand, in Shari Tzedek, Yecheved was the only woman having her first baby. Everyone else, it was baby 10, 11, 12. 15 minutes after the baby came out, they were already up and around. You know? But that was the way. You had to get up and go. Now today they've changed it. Baruch Hashem. But, uh, so that's the image here. The righteous... Not to suggest that Yecheved not, is not righteous. The righteous, the man was at their doorstep. Those who are less than righteous had to get up and go get it. For you, Moshe, I'm going to give you bread. It's waiting outside your tent. You won't have to go out and get it. It'll be there prepared for you. They'll have to go out and collect it. Because they didn't trust, because they didn't have faith, because they complained, so therefore God reciprocates. You didn't have faith that I would provide? I'm providing, but you're going to have to make a little effort. You're going to have to go somewhere and go get it, and collect it and schlep it. Only the righteous who believed in me had faith in me to begin with. For them it will be sitting outside their front door. It will be designated and waiting for them. So understand, what's the, what's the Orachayim essentially saying? This Pasuk was not directed to the whole people. Later Hashem will tell them about the man they're going to get. This is God telling Moshe about his man. That the righteous of man delivered that right to them. And that's why, where did Orachayim get all this from? Because what word is missing? Lemor. The fact that God did not tell Moshe to repeat this means it was not said, it was not intended for them. It's only for him. Hashem will tell them again about the man. So this was directed specifically and uniquely to Moshe that the righteous would have the bread waiting right for them. You'll collect it each day for that day. Says Rashi, Pasuk Dalad. What does it mean, each day for that day? It means that you collect the needs of that day, that day, and you don't anticipate, well, tomorrow. What about tomorrow? You take for what you need right then, and you don't start to wrap in a napkin Right at breakfast, for back in the room, a little bit later, some uh, who knows, someone might get hungry, but you only take for right then, and you don't take for later. Now the big question on this pasuk and the man, Hashem says, what's the purpose of the man? Laman anasenu. It's a test. It's a test. And what's the test? Says the Torah. To test, God says, whether they will go in my Torah or not. What does that mean? What's the test of the man? What was the test of the man? So here you have a big machlokus. So you have a big machlokus. Says Rashi, The test was, God says, I'm going to provide. But there are rules that go with that which I provide. Will you follow my rules? Namely, That you're not going to collect more than you need for that day. And that you're not going to go out on Shabbos to collect. You're going to trust. You'll have a double portion will last. I'm giving you. I'm providing for you. But it comes with rules. And the test is, Will you follow my Torah? Torah means hora'ah. 
It means rules. Will you follow the rules that accompany my providing? That's how Rashi understands the test. Test had nothing to do with faith, says Rashi. Test had to do with rules. God says, you're hungry, you have no access to food, you rely on me to provide, I'll provide. But my providing comes with the rules. Let's see if you follow the rules or not. I'll learn a lot about you as a people. That's how Rashi understands it. Comes along the Ramban, quotes Rashi and says, nachon. Rashi is wrong. He doesn't mince his words. But rather, understand it the way it says it later. What does the Ramban explain? What was the test? The test was not the rules. You know what the test was? The test was they didn't have anything to eat. The test was that they were hungry. They had no access to food. And there was no other solution in the desert other than this man. That was all that there was. And something that they had never seen. Something they had never heard of. Something no one had ever been exposed to before the man. Their fathers have never heard of it. Their, their parents had never heard of it. And it fell every day. Would they only collect for that day? Would they have faith that Hashem would provide again tomorrow? That was the test. If you have enough for today, do you choose to be satisfied today? Or do you live your white life worrying about tomorrow? That was the test. And when Hashem promises, I will provide tomorrow, you will be okay. Do you trust or do you take extra today even though you're not supposed to? That's the test. The Ramban continues. Hashem later in Sefer Bamidbar, Moshe is offering this soliloquy, God is recounting and recalling all that had occurred in the desert. And later Hashem in recalling the story says, I took you 40 years in the desert in order to test you to know what was in your heart. What was in your heart? Would you follow my mitzvahs or not? God could have taken them not through the desert. He could have taken them through urban cities, populated with supermarkets. But no. He didn't. He intentionally took them through the desert, a place that there would be no provisions other than that which God provided. And how would they react? And how would they respond? You know when you learn about someone? Not when they're affluent. Not when they have all their needs. Not when they know where their next meal is coming from. You learn about somebody when they're down and out. Hashem intentionally put the Jewish people in a position of being down and out to learn everything about them. Could they have faith even in a bleak moment? Could they be satisfied with having enough today even without knowing where tomorrow would come from? Would they trust Hashem when He said, just as I've provided for you today, so too I will provide for you tomorrow. The Ramban says, I've already explained the purpose of a test when the Pasuk says, God tested Avraham. The Rambam explains, 
What did the Ramban explain there? The Ramban explained with Avram, what's the purpose of a test? I think we talked about it. To go min To go from potential to real. When you're in a tested situation, you learn all kinds of things about yourself that you would have never ever known otherwise. Right? Didn't I tell you that story about the guy who pushed into the pool, scorpions and snakes, I think in a drusha. Yeah. You don't remember it. Okay, good. I could use it again next year. So, the purpose of a test... You don't remember the wealthy man who had a the wealthy man who had a magnificent estate. He was giving a tour of his estate, and uh, he came upon he had many pools. One pool was filled with snakes and scorpions and piranhas. And he said, "Anyone who jumps in can swim from one side to the other. I'll give you anything that you want from my wealth, from my estate." And they turn to go on. Everybody laughs, and uh, all of a sudden they hear a splash. And they turn, and one of the guys is swimming in his suit, in his tuxedo, in his formal attire, swimming frantically from one end to the other, dodging these killer fish and he makes it he survives he comes out the other side and the wealthy man says to him I can't believe you took me up on that it's insane but you survived you made it you did it you came out the other side tell me what is it that you want I have to make good on my promise so the man said there's only one thing I want only one thing I want I want to know who pushed me in (laughs) and what's the lesson of the story if you would say can I jump in and survive and swim and make it to the other side? Not a chance. But sometimes you get pushed in and you discover all kinds of strengths that you have that you would have ever that come to the surface and then now become part of your portfolio that you otherwise never would have known. Says the Ramban back there in the Akeda, that's the purpose of an Isayon. God tests us, it's not a test. Test is the wrong translation. It's an opportunity. An opportunity to discover aspects skills, strengths, talents that we otherwise never would have had access to. It's an opportunity to bring it to the surface, to expose it, to make it part of our repertoire, part of our portfolio. So says the Rambam, When Hashem says, I've given the man to them to test them, this is by design. Hashem could have taken us through a beautiful city, a resort town, could have had access to a supermarket. He specifically by design took us through the Midbar. Why? Because you learn a lot about someone when they're down and out. It gave us the opportunity to harness and cultivate and sharpen our sense of faith in Hashem. To believe that when He says He'll provide tomorrow, I don't need to take a double portion today. I believe Him that He's going to provide tomorrow. That's the Ramban. The Rashbam, Shmuel ben Meir, Rashi's grandson says, The Rashbam says, means simply, they're relying on me, it's going to grow their faith in me. Hashem took them from a slave nation who had no exposure to God or faith in Him, He took them to a desert, a place that could cultivate and reinforce a deep sense of faith. That's the Lamana Anasana, the Rashbam says. That it would work their faith in Hashem because the food came from Hashem. The Svarno has a different take. Svarno's got a great take. Says, you know what the test was? Until now we said, you know what the test is? Being in the desert and barren and having, being hopeless, having no access to food, relying exclusively on Hashem. That's for everyone else what the test is. The Sforno says the opposite. He says, you know what the test is? Winning the lottery. Yeah. Test is, you've got food dropping from heaven. You have no effort, no work, no toil. 
You have to do absolutely nothing to earn it. Let's see what you do with your free time. Let's see the attitude that you have. You've won the lottery. You came into some big money. Let's see how you act, how you behave. Let's see what you do now with it. You can give them even time to, a little bit to rest and... Uh Right Tested them right away. Right. Yeah. The Kliyakar summarizes, quotes Rashi. Kliyakar gives yet another opinion, but I don't want to spend another moment. I want to go, go forward. But we saw four different interpretations. Torah says, Laman Anasenu. God says, I've given them the man as a test. What exactly is the test? That's, that's a question. Continuing On the sixth day, On the fifth day, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring, it will be double what they bring every other day. In other words, you're to collect and bring into your home each day what you need for that day. On the sixth day, you are to collect and to bring in what you need for that day and the next day. Mishneh, double. And this is where we learn the concept of... Mishneh Lechem. Mishneh Lechem means... Two chalos. This is why we have two chalos Friday night and Shabbos day. It's a remembrance of the man. It commemorates. No, it's also that's the Shteya Lechem in the Mishkan and the Beis Hamikdash. That's why Hasidic Rebbe's have uh, have uh, two big chalas and then ten little chalas corresponding with the twelve loaves in the Mishkan. Actually, some others say that the two chalas are shaped like the letter Vav. Each one is six, and together they're twelve. Some say you braid. You braid each one with six, six, uh, six braided chala, so that together it's twelve. So even when you have Lechem Mishnah, it's corresponding with the idea of 12. But really, you're obligated only in two loaves. Mishnah Lechem, two loaves, as a remembrance and reminder of the Mishnah Lechem, of the, uh, of the man that fell in the Midbar. In fact, Rabbeinu Tam, the Franco-German toastless Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi's grandson, says that although women are generally exempt from mitzvahs as man grama, time-bound mitzvahs. And Lechem Mishnah is a time-bound Mishnah, is a time-bound mitzvah, Lechem Mishnah. It's Shabbos, it's time-bound. Nevertheless, women, says Rabbeinu Tam, are obligated in Lechem Mishnah. Why? Because Afein Ayubaoso Anis. Because they too are part of the miracle of the man. Since Lechem Mishnah corresponds with man, and women were part of the miracle of the man, even though it violates the general rule of women being exempt from a time-bound mitzvah, says Rabbeinu Tam, women are obligated in the mitzvah of Lechem Mishnah. We are Lechem Mishnah that we eat corresponds with the way the man fell. We're obligated, we all focus on the covering on top of the Lechem Mishnah, the challah cover. But do you know you're equally obligated to have a covering underneath the challah? The whole concept of a challah board of something underneath the challah is because the man, when the man fell, it fell on a layer of dew, was protected beneath it by a layer of dew, and it was covered above it by a layer of dew. Corresponding with that, we have the white tablecloth on the table, we have a challah tray, we have a layer underneath it, and we have a challah cover on top of it, both corresponding with the, lechem, with the, uh, with the man as the lechem mishnah. That's why before Kiddush, but that's uh, but it also corresponds with the man. In the evening, you will know that God took you out of Egypt. In the morning, you will see the honor of God. The fact that He has heard your complaints. And what are you doing complaining to us? Who are we and what are we? We're nothing. 
We're nothing that you're complaining to us. What's going on here? So the Ramban explains that when Moshe and Aaron say, they're saying, here you've come complaining to us that you're hungry. You complain to us that you're thirsty. You complain, 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 complain to us. It's not us. Kirsh Baruch is the one who runs the world. V'nach numa, what are we? It's a great statement of humility. Lo anachnu motzim eschem misham kasher amartim ki otzeisem osanu. Right? When they address Moshe and Aaron, they say to him, why did you take us out of Egypt to die here? Moshe and Aaron turn back and say, whoa, have you forgotten already who took you out? It wasn't us. Who took you out? Hashem took you out. And He's the one determining your fate and destiny now. So what are you complaining to us? It's Hashem. In the evening, you'll know it's Hashem. In the morning, you'll see the honor of Hashem. What does that mean? So now Pasuk Ches, he elaborates, Moshe. Vayama Moshe. Beseis Hashem lechem bo'erev, basar lechol. When God gives you in the evening meat to eat, the lechem baboker and bread in the morning, lisboa to be full, fill with, full with. Bishmo Hashem, it means God has heard your complaints, asher atem malinim alav, that you are complaining, that you're registering with Him. V'nachnu ma, but what are we? Ki salinu, lo alinu, lo alinu tulinoseichem ki al Hashem. You're misdirecting your complaints. We're not the ones responsible. We don't. We haven't taken you out of Egypt. We're not the catalysts of miracles. It is Hashem. Now it's interesting. When Moshe tells them you'll have bread, he says you'll have bread, lespoa, v'lechem baboker lespoa. Bread in the morning, lespoa. What does lespoa mean? What is saveya? Satiated, full. You'll have enough bread, you'll have enough man to be full. When he tells them about meat, he just tells them, of basar. In the night you'll have some meat. He doesn't say you'll have to your satisfaction. Why? Look at Rashi Pasuk Ches. When it comes to meat, lo lasova, lam da Torah derech eretz sheinochlin basar lasova. You learn from here that you shouldn't overindulge in meat. You shouldn't. Uh, what's the word? Be a glutton, gorge with meat. Umara lahorid lachem baboker ubasar ba'erev. So why did God see fit? To have the bread fall in the morning, the man in the morning, and the meat, the slav in the evening. Because when it came to the bread, they asked properly. To ask for bread is a legitimate request because everyone needs bread. It's a staple of the survival. It was inappropriate to ask about meat. Why? Because, first of all, they had livestock. They left with great cattle. So, what's the matter? You don't want to dip into the principle of your cattle to make a barbecue? You ask Hashem to create a miracle to bring, bread, to bring meat? A. And B, bread is a luxury item. Uh, meat is a luxury item. Who says you need meat? It's a luxury item. It's a luxury good. You could have survived with bread. So asking Hashem for bread? Legitimate. Asking or demanding Hashem meat? That wasn't legitimate. So Hashem reciprocates. The bread which you deserved and you asked appropriately, it fell in the morning, the beginning of the day, when you needed it. The meat which you asked inappropriate, it fell at the end of the day. And it fell not enough for you to be able to feel satiated from it. Not enough to feel full, uh, to feel full from it. So this is the, the story of the, of the man. Who calls it man? By the way, so now it's called lechem and lechem and lechem. Turn to pasuk tezvav. Skip ahead for a moment. 
ויראו בני ישראל ויאמרו איש אל אחיו מנהו כי לא ידעו מהו They called it מנהו because they didn't know what it was ויאמר משה עליהם הוא עליך מה שמצאנו שם לכם לאכלה משה says to them relax this is the bread that God has given for you to eat So isn't it interesting who gives it the name Man? B'nei Yisrael, not Hashem. Hashem kept referring to it as Lechem. This is the bread, it's bread that doesn't go from the ground, it's bread that happens to instead fall from the heavens. Hashem calls it Lechem. It is the people who call it Man. Now understand, this is a very significant, this is a miracle. The Ibn Ezra describes that the miracle of the falling of the Man was the greatest miracle they, they experienced. It was greater than the ten plagues. It was greater than the splitting of the sea. It was greater than the cloud of glory in the well of Miriam. The greatest, most revealed miracle they experienced was the month. In fact, it was so great, so central, so significant to our people's history that a portion of the month was preserved in a jar that was placed in the Aron Kodesh, in the ark that was ever present in the Beis HaMikdash. Continues to be hidden in the Temple Mount today. There's, there's mud. One day we will come across this mud. We will discover it. So central, so significant, that it was preserved as part of our history in the Aron, in the Ark. So now the Jewish people come along, and they have this incredibly important, significant, central food, miraculously, the biggest miracle the Ibn Ezra says, and what's the designation they give it? They call it mud. Now what does mud mean? What does the word mean? According to Rashi, the word man means food. Food. What do you, if you go to Israel today and you're ordering a slice of pizza in the restaurant, how do you say, I want one slice? How do you say, I want two slices? Shtemanot. It means a portion of food. Man is a portion of food. I want a man of food. I want shtemanot. Two portions, two slices. The man was a portion. So isn't it puzzling? The Dordea, you have the, the greatest generation, right? They say the greatest uh, generation of Americans was what, the World War II generation? The greatest generation of Jews, the Dordea, who experienced these incredible miracles, who came out of Egypt, the generation who had this unbelievable revelation, the Dordea. And the only name they could think of, they don't call it the bread of Emuna, the miraculous bread. What do they call it? Stuff. Food. Food stuff. The food stuff. A portion. That's what they call it. The portion. So why are they calling it that? It's a very ordinary description for a very extraordinary thing. So perhaps you could answer, perhaps you could answer that even though it wasn't ordinary in the sense that it fell from the sky, maybe B'nai Yisrael anticipated it was actually flattering Hashem to recognize that the man really was no different than all the other access to food that they had. Whether the food fell from heaven or the food grows from the earth, it's equally miraculous in that it comes from Hashem. That even the ordinary is extraordinary. And therefore to call the extraordinary, ordinary. In other words, when they call it man, meaning food, it reminds us essentially there's no difference from any source of our nourishment. All of our food stuff is a generous and gracious gift from above and descends upon us like the rain. It's the greatest miracle because it's the greatest acknowledgement that our very survival, our very existence, our very everything comes from Hashem. So weekly, each and every Shabbos, we begin the Friday night meal and Shabbos day. Men, and according to Rabbeinu Tam, women equally obligated with Mishnah Lachem, with 
with uh, with uh, two chalas commemorating the falling of the man to remind ourselves that the beautiful delicacies, the wonderful meal we're about to indulge in, is no less miraculous. Our livelihood, our parnasa, our sustenance, that I can go to Publix or Winn-Dixie or Kosher Marketplace and reach to the shelf and grab a loaf of bread and pay for it. And that is bread packaged in the many varieties that it is and it's fresh and delicious. The fact that I have it is no less miraculous than the man that fell from heaven. My very existence, sustenance, well-being, livelihood is in itself miraculous. And therefore we're mandated to remember that by beginning our meal with Lecha Mishnah. We begin with the two loaves, we begin with the man. And that's the miracle. The miracle is that everything around us continues to put forth. I mean, think about it. Why is it no less miraculous that wheat grows from the earth and that you can grind that into flour and mix it with water and bake bread? What's the difference between the bread coming from the earth or coming from the heavens? Only one thing. Our expectation of it. We fully expect it to grow from the ground. That's what we call natural. Falling from the sky? We don't expect it. That's what we would call supernatural. But there's really no difference. Even the natural is supernatural. It's all really from Hashem. That's the miracle of appreciating that's what's around us. That's Tu Right? The holiday of Tu that even the trees have a Rosh Hashanah, that, that we pray the trees will produce and yield its fruit, the magnificent fruit. Not to take anything for granted, but to appreciate that even whether the tree will grow the, mango, the, tree will grow the mangoes, the tree will grow the apples or oranges, is no less miraculous than the mud falling from heaven. So it, it aggravates me to no end. I received probably 10 emails yesterday, Yom Shlishi, there's a tradition that if you recite the Parsha Saman, if you read the story of how the man fell on the Yom Shlishi on Tuesday of Parsha's Beshalach, then you're guaranteed Parnasa. And all of these people around us mumbling words they don't even understand, heebie-jeebie superstition, thinking, if I just read this text, then I'm guaranteed my stocks will go up, the portfolio will go up, my Parnasa is guaranteed, beautiful, isn't that great? It's ridiculous, it's foolish. It's stupid. One should, one should read the Parsha Saman. I'm not saying don't read the Parsha Saman. Read the Parsha Saman. Not just Tuesday. Read it Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Not just Parsha Bashalach. Read it the whole year. But it's not just reading it. What are you supposed to do when you read it? You're supposed to realize that your livelihood, your parnasa, your social security check, your investments, your income, everything is no less miraculous than the man. And the same way, Dvar Yom Biyomo, each day the Jewish people said, I have what to eat today, thank you God. And I have faith that you will have for what for me to eat tomorrow. It is the attitude of the man. It is the test of the man that we're supposed to feel. So to think that you could just read and mumble a text without understanding it, and that's going to guarantee you some livelihood, is nothing less of, in my opinion, foolish and superstitious. It is to bring the attitude and approach of the man, which will please God bring a great parnasa for us all.